Amen. Open your Bibles this morning if you have one to Mark chapter 12. I'm so excited for that. Uh, thankful he is a tuner. Amen. Some of you guys are thankful for that. We'll get around that point. Uh, he is our anchor. We're so thankful for him. Uh, Mark chapter 12. We're going to be looking at a passage um, that actually, um, we're not going to go the direction it usually goes when somebody opens to this passage, but we're going to kind of use this as a springboard into talking about a topic that um, I know that in my Christian life and just in my life in general I've struggled with, and I'm sure that you have as well at some point. Um, Some of you maybe not as much as others, but I think we all battle with this at some degree. And I think it's because in the church we, we have an emphasis, which it should be, on exalting Christ and promoting Christ and making Him the center of everything, which is good, by the way. That's what the church is to do. But I think in the midst of that, sometimes we get lost in translation. We get lost in the and just kind of the everyday life of just how do we view ourselves in a positive way without overemphasizing who we are. And so, excuse me, this morning, I want to kind of work through that together. I want to talk about how do we love ourselves as much as God loves us? How do we love ourselves as much as God loves us and yet keep the right focus in that self-love? And so we're going to kind of break this apart this morning. And I want to go to Mark chapter 12 and look at verse 30 to kind of get us in that direction. Mark chapter 12 and verse 30. And it says here, And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like, namely this, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. Than these. There's no other commandment greater than these, that you love the Lord your God with all of you, and you love your neighbor as yourself. We read this famous summary that Jesus gives about the Old Testament law, as well as the prophets. Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? And now those of you that maybe know this, there was over 600 commandments that the Jewish people had to follow daily, weekly, monthly, or yearly, depending on where they were in the course of a year, a calendar year. And so it had to do with what you could eat, what you could wear, how you could dress, what you could do on certain days. Uh, There's even a law, there was a law that was put in that if you were on the Sabbath day and you were walking into someone's home and you had some mud on your shoes and you kicked the front of the house, kind of the side of the front, the post there to kind of knock the mud off your shoes before you went inside, they could arrest you for working on the Sabbath day. You could be killed for that because you demonstrated work on the Sabbath by doing this, kicking some mud off your shoes. It just got ridiculous. And I don't know about you, but I think about that, and I think, man, I'm so thankful that we don't have to live under the confines and the bondage of that law, that we have been set free from that in Christ Jesus. And so while the law itself, there was the good law, the law that God himself gave, and then there was laws that were added in that that Pharisees or the religious leaders began to add in. But in any context, there was these commandments that every day they had to live by and live under and all of these things. And they started picking and choosing which ones we were going to live by and which ones we were going to kind of ignore. Okay, it's kind of like when you go to school, and in college we got handed a syllabus that had all these assignments on it, and it tells you, at least in my classes, it told me what percentage of my grade each assignment was, and so the first thing I did day one was I started checking off the ones that I wasn't going to do. I was like, well, that's only 5%. We're not going to spend time on that. That's 35%. We're going to circle that one and do that one. I was picking and choosing which ones were really worth my time, my effort. Okay? And that's what these, these religious leaders and these Jewish people were starting to do. They were picking and choosing. Which ones can we live by? Which ones can we get away with not doing? 
And so they go to Jesus and they say, hey, Jesus, you're from God. You're a teacher of God. What is the greatest commandment? Because they wanted him to start telling them, you're okay for not doing this one or you're okay for not doing that one. This one I would do. This one I would probably keep doing. They wanted an excuse for their apathy. And they also wanted to trip them up because if he started saying which ones were right and wrong, which ones are good and bad, they could say, no, no, it's all God's law and you must not be from God if you're telling us we don't have to follow God's law in fullness. But do you see how they're kind of double talking here? They tell Jesus, you better tell us that all of the commands are from God and need to be kept. But they themselves weren't keeping all the commandments from God. They just wanted to trap Jesus in a religious debate, religious argument to show that he wasn't really the Messiah. And so what Jesus does is he gives them a summary. He says, this is the law, the prophets. This is the entire time of God up to this point. And he says, these two things are the greatest commandments. If you're taking notes, I encourage you to jot these down. This idea of love the Lord your God with all of you and love your neighbor as yourself comes from two different Old Testament passages, two different references to the Old Testament. We're not going to turn there for time's sake. Deuteronomy chapter 6, Deuteronomy chapter 6, and Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. And I know we, as soon as I said that, you thought, man, I love reading Deuteronomy and Leviticus. Those are my favorite books of the Bible. Because there's just so much interesting stuff in there, you know. I always love when you ask somebody, what's your favorite book of the Bible? Nobody says Leviticus, right? They're like, oh, I like the Gospel of John. Or, right, I like the book of James or one of those New Testament books. But nobody's like, you know, I just love Leviticus. It just gets my heart going, you know, reading all that stuff. Okay, it is, it is difficult reading at times. But it's interesting that Jesus used this, reciting back to an early prayer of the Jewish people and an understanding of the heart of the law of God. See, we tend to think that God somehow changed when Jesus stepped on the scene. But God never changed. The very same grace that he extends to the person of Jesus Christ and the cross of Calvary is the same grace that was with God when he told Adam and Eve, here, I'll show you how to make a sacrifice so that we can still have a relationship. And do you see that that's grace just as much as Jesus dying for our sins is a gracious act of God. God's always desired relationship with his people. And so the law was meant to show us our need for him. Our need that we are not perfect and we need to rely on him. There was a heart to the law that God desired would lead us to relationship. But we just as people, and as being stupid sometimes, which we can be stupid sometimes, we got it all messed up. And we started trying to live the letter of the law, and God's going, you can't. Man, if you could live the letter of the law, you wouldn't need a sacrifice for sin because you'd be sinless. But you can't. So here, I'm going to give you this time of sacrifice so your sins may be forgiven. Jesus references this daily prayer of the Jewish people where they would acknowledge that God is one. That God is one and worthy of all praise. But he adds to it an extension from that. And basically the example is this. If I love God with all of me, if I'm loving God with my heart, mind, body, and soul, then I'll be able then to love my neighbor in the right context. When Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, this, in my opinion, means to love others, even your enemies or those you dislike. Remember Jesus speaking to the Jews about the Samaritans whom they hated and said, that is your neighbor. You need to love them as I have loved you and as you love yourself. One author said it well when he said this about this idea of loving God and loving our neighbor. And I, I, I found this amazing. 
He says this, uniting love for God and neighbor is truly the greatest commandment. Uniting love for God and neighbor. So who's your neighbor? Who's your neighbor? It's not necessarily your physical neighbor because some of you live in an area or, or around here where your neighbor's maybe five, six miles away. Right? Amen. Yeah, some of you guys like that, okay? Some of you need to live in an area like that because you would freak your neighbors out, okay? So just you stay in your little area and they'll stay on theirs. You'll be good. But who's our neighbor? Jesus said, no, no, your neighbor is anybody outside of you. And he says, man, you need to love them. And what does he say? He says, love them as you love yourself. I want to focus on that phrase, yourself, as you love yourself. Basically, Jesus was teaching, same as the Apostle Paul references in Ephesians chapter 5, with the love for your wife, as Paul puts it, Jesus says, any man would love themselves, and therefore that very same self-love should be extended to others. What kind of love was that? It wasn't a prideful love. It was actually a love of saying, if you're going to nourish your own body, you're going to take care of yourself, you're going to meet your own needs, then if you love someone else as much as you love yourself, then you're going to want to hunger and thirst to meet their needs, to love them, to nourish them. As a husband and wife, that idea of that one flesh, that a man that loves his wife as Christ loved the church, goes out of his way to sacrifice so that his wife's needs are met. Paul says it. What man wouldn't nourish his own body, take care of himself, but yet that kind of a love we have for ourselves, we don't always extend to others. So Jesus is saying, as you love yourself, you need to love others. What's the problem in that? What is the problem, the core problem, if we begin to live this way and start to think it's okay to actually love myself and have a love for self? We can run really quick through the spectrum and it becomes a prideful type of love. It becomes more about promoting me than promoting Christ. We tend to think that we are the main focus, taking attention off of God and putting it on ourselves. However, I believe that in Christ, in a relationship with Jesus Christ and the filling of his Holy Spirit, we can have a healthy love for ourselves while still worshiping God. And let's be honest this morning. So many people, for one reason or the next, hate themselves. So many people in our culture today have a genuine hate for themselves. They hate who they are. They hate what they've done. They hate what they've said. They hate they can't conquer this or conquer that. They, they think themselves as less valuable because they don't look like them, because they don't have all the stuff that somebody else has. We, we start hating our very selves. And I think about that in regards to our image that we put on ourselves. And in today's day and age, we are very image sensitive, image aware. And we look at each other and we judge each other based on image. Even in today's day and age, there's such a push. I mean, every time I turn on any kind of infomercial, it's all about this kind of exercise this or exercise that. And exercise is great and good and needed and we should be healthy. But man, sometimes I think our drive to be healthy has nothing to do with healthiness, but everything to do with somebody else's version of how they see us. We tend to think, man, i got to lose this weight, not because I want to lose it to be healthy, because if I don't lose it, someone's going to look down on me or judge me or criticize me. Some of you have tried this, and you've lost weight or you've gotten in shape, and you had these goals, and you missed your goal, and you were so afraid of what others would think, you actually gave up altogether and said, I quit. Because sometimes that good encouragement turned into a negative when you started thinking, man, they're just looking at me, and they want me to be this and to look like that. 
I want to really work through this because we have to understand we as God's people have no business hating ourselves whom God loves and loved. Now, I want to wrap our minds around this because I truly believe that it can, it's a trap we can fall into. The things we do, we end up, we hate who we've become. We hate what we've done. And it's something that just weighs on us and we tear ourselves down and beat ourselves up. Way beyond biblical conviction. Way beyond what it's supposed to be, which is to lead us to repentance. I truly believe it is so common that when we become unhappy with ourselves, we'll actually start hating ourselves. We think it's how it has to be. We think it's just normal to go through these seasons. And it is normal for human beings. But let me ask you a question. Is that how God sees you? Is that how God sees you? Is that how God thinks of you? I truly believe that we need to believe three things about ourselves that God already believes about you so that we can have a healthy love for ourselves. And see, this is the key. Everything we're talking about this morning centers around the person of Jesus Christ, centers around our relationship with him. So it's not that we're promoting ourselves over Christ, that we need to think we're something more than we are. It's saying in and through and with Jesus Christ, who does he say that we are? How does he see you? What does he say about you? And I think if we base our view of ourselves based on that, I think we'll have a healthy love for ourselves and a healthier love for him. I think we can get so easily swept up in this in today's culture that we just tear ourselves down and beat ourselves up. And then we think we're doing a good thing. We actually think if we think too highly of ourselves that we're not going to promote Christ. And that's true. So we think way lower of ourselves than we should. And we end up marring the name of Christ. So what do we need to believe? What are the three things we need to believe about ourselves that God already believes about us? First and foremost, we need to believe what God did for us. What God did for us. John chapter 3 and verse 16. I know it's very familiar, but I want to turn there. John 3, 16 and 17. To truly love ourselves as God loves us, we have to believe some key things about ourselves. And the first thing we have to believe is what God did for us. What God did for us. Look at John 3.16. For God so loved the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world. But that the world through him might be saved. I don't know about you, but sometimes I just have to stop and slow down and think about the beauty and the simplicity of the cross. And if you start thinking low of yourself and, and, and negative of yourself, you need something. Well, what did God do for me that shows me my value? Now, this is where some people say, no, 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 brother. We were wretched, horrible, wicked, despising sinners that hated God. Exactly. <laughs> and that's why the love of God is so amazing. Because we were sinners in need of a salvation. We weren't looking for God. We hated God. We rejected God. We despised him. We willfully did things against him and violated his laws. And he still says that he loved us so much that he sent his only begotten son to die on a cross for our sins. Not that we would be condemned, but that we would be saved. 
and have a relationship with Jesus Christ. It is true that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, according to the Bible. But that's why the love of God is so amazing. That's why, I don't know about you, but I think we need to remind ourselves just ever so often about the love of God for us. Jesus gave himself for us. Jesus loves you so much that he went to the cross, then to the grave, then rose again for you and I to have the opportunity to know him personally for eternity. Now, I don't know what that does for you. But for me, there's this part of me that just gets really fired up when I think about that. And I get so excited that I just can't help but just think, man, God, how great are you? How loving and gracious are you that in spite of me, you died for me? I mean, does anyone else, can anyone else even testify? Just a little amen would be a praise right now. This is how much God loves you. See, the reason I don't think the love of God hits us like it should is because we don't really believe who we are before the love of God affects us. I think some of us think, I wasn't that bad. I know you were worse. <laughs> and yet, that's the beauty of the cross, that he died for you in spite of you, and belief on his name will bring eternal salvation and security, not because of what you do for him, but because of what he's already done for you. And when that kind of love grips your hearts, man, you'll begin to understand what he did for you. And it will begin to change your thinking of yourself. It was a willing sacrifice he offered for you. It was a willing sacrifice. Let me say that again. He willingly submitted to the will of the Father to die for your sins on a cross, be buried, and rise again. Willingly. Was not forced to. He chose the route of the cross. Max Lucado said this about the gift of the cross. Every gift, he says, reveals God's love. Every gift, meaning the gift of breath in our lungs, health and wellness, our homes, our finances, our security, all the things that he gifts us with, all of them reveal his love. But no gift reveals his love more than the gift of the cross they came not wrapped in paper, but in passion. Not placed around a tree, but a cross. And not covered in ribbons, but sprinkled with blood. The gifts of the cross. And when we realize what he did for us, and how much he loves you, it will, I pray, hopefully begin to affect your thinking, and you'll begin to love yourself as much as God loves you, and stop beating yourself up, and putting yourself down, and tearing yourself down, and realizing He loves you that much. Do you ever just sit sometimes, and just think, God, I know you love me? I, I do this in my head often. I'll sit in my office or at home, and I'll think, God, I know you love me. Your word says you love me. I believe you love me. I've experienced your love. But how could you really love me that much? Anybody else ever been there? Anybody else ever asked the question of God? How could you love me that much? I mean, I get that you love me. I'm so thankful for his love. It's not a, I'm not doubting his love. I don't, I have a faith in his love. But it's more just understanding how could you love me that much? I mean, how, I mean really, how could you go to the cross for me? See, when we understand what he did for us, it will truly change our view of ourselves. 
we often question how much God loves us and wonder if he really does love me as much as he says he does. When I'm in the face of sins I've committed, when I'm contemplating or looking back over sins I've committed, I wonder, could you really love me in spite of that? But the only way we could say it is that the love of God is truly beyond our understanding, beyond our, our, our ability to grasp the love of God. Spurgeon said this about John 3.16. It's a longer quote, but I wanted to read this when I was studying. I just, I loved what he said here. Spurgeon said this of John 3.16. Whence came that love? Whence came that love? Not from anything outside of God himself. God's love springs up from himself. He loves because it is nature to do so. God is love. All I have said already, nothing upon the face of the earth could have merited his love, though there was much to merit his displeasure. Let me read that again. There is nothing upon the face of the earth that it could have merited his love, though there was much to merit his displeasure. This stream of love flows from its own secret source in the eternal deity, and it owes nothing to any earth-born rain or rivulet. It springs from beneath the everlasting throne and fills itself from the springs of the infinite. And what a powerful truth that the love of God is not constrained. It does not originate from anything earth-born. It is all of him. It springs from him. It is secured by him. It is given from his ever-loving, gracious hand. And it is received by those that would humbly submit and say, I just believe that I am in need of salvation. I have violated your laws. And I receive openly, because of the work of the Holy Spirit in my life, the gift of God, which is eternal life through Christ Jesus, which will bring you eternal life this moment, not just when you die. See, what he did for you doesn't just guarantee salvation after you die. It brings salvation and relationship right now. When you woke up this morning, if you know Christ, you were living and experiencing eternal life. Not because of what you did for him, but because of his love for you. We need to believe what he did for us. But secondly, and quickly, we need to believe what God says about us. Not just what God did for you, which is powerful enough. Let me just say this. If that's not motivation to start changing the way you're thinking, then I don't know what else will. But if we start with the love of God and the cross of Christ and realize it's all about knowing him first for forgiveness of sins, we need to believe, secondly, what God says about us. Two things I want to point out this morning. He says that we are his crowning creation. His crowning creation. The only thing in creation that was formed by the hand of God was human beings. Everything else was spoken into creation. I believe in my mind this symbolizes the value, the connection God desires with us. You ever think about that? Did he have to form us with his hands? Did he have to get down on his hands and knees and form us of the dust of the ground and breathe into our nostrils the breath of life that man would become a living soul? If he could speak stars into existence that we can't even fathom the size of, I think he could speak you and I into existence. But I believe he was showing us something. I believe he was demonstrating something for us. And it's a desire for the connection that God is saying, I want to be hands-on with human beings. I want to be hands-on with you as my creation. 
that he values you so much that you are his crowning creation. We are the only thing also in creation that is said to be made in the image of God. Just think about that for a moment. We are the only thing in all of creation, all the beauty and wonder of creation. Sandra and I, a few weeks ago, we were out west driving through from Las Vegas to uh, Southern California. We were driving through that area there. And it is just, it's beautiful in a unique way. We've seen mountains before, but I had never driven out there before and saw the mountains in Nevada. And it was so crazy because you drive through Kentucky or, you know, out over here in different mountain areas, and it's all green and lush and these beautiful trees. Out there, it's just barren. It's just dirt <laughs> everywhere. And there'd be like this random little, like, cactus-looking thing, and they're like, oh, look, there, that's cool. And I'm like, that's nothing. <laughs> but it was beautiful to see this, this creation of God's hand, the forming of these mountains. And he says, greater than that. I didn't make the mountains in my image. I didn't make the animal kingdom in my image. I didn't make trees in my image or the stars or the planets. All of those things reflect my majesty, he says. But he says, no, no, no. There's one thing that I've made in my image. Only one thing in creation bears the image of God. And that's you and I. And when you start thinking you're not valuable and you're not good, you're not this and you're not that, listen, in our sin... We are destined for a place called hell. We need his salvation. We are broken in sin. We need cleansing and forgiving. forgiving. But we still bear the mark of the creator even before we know Christ. Because he put his mark on all of humanity. And that's why he loves you so much that he came and died for you. And the sad thing that breaks God's heart is that there will be those that reject his salvation having bared the mark of the creator He's not their heavenly father as he is those in Christ, but he is their creator, and therefore they are under his authority and judgment. Man, we have the mark of God, the image of God. What did Jesus say when they asked him about paying taxes to Caesar? He says, give unto Caesar what is Caesar's, give unto God what is God's. What led him in that argument? We talked about this a few months ago. Because the image of Caesar was on the coin. And when Jesus said, give unto God what is God's, he wasn't just saying, give him 10%. <laughs> he wasn't saying, give him Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. He wasn't saying, give him 20 minutes a morning. He was saying, you bear the mark of the creator, therefore you are his. Give unto God what is God's, give unto him all of you. And we bear his mark. We were created with purpose. So God says we are his crowning creation, but also God says... That in Christ we are his children. Turn over to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 and verse 15. Romans chapter 8 and verse 15. We're not just his crown and creation, but we are also a child of God in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 8 and verse 15 says this. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear. Praise God for that. Some of you live in fear. That is not from God. You don't need to fear. As Brother Gary is saying so well, man, when we lay that worry down and we pick up faith, then we'll see God do great things in our lives. Then we'll experience his presence like never before. Man, cast all your anxiety, all your fears, the Bible says. 
Because God has not given you a spirit of fear. Look what the Bible says again in verse 15. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Verse 16, the spirit itself bear witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Man, is there any other more beautiful phrase that we are referred to? Some of you grew up in churches where you were told that you're just a sinner saved by grace. We have sinned. We needed grace. Through grace we were saved and redeemed and set free from the bondage of sin. Praise God for that. I get what people mean when they say it. I was a sinner who is saved by grace currently. But do you realize that God doesn't call you that once you receive Christ? Uh, Do you realize that God uses phrases like this, the children of God, the beloved? We need to change how we see ourselves, change how we think about ourselves. Not in a prideful self-promotion, but in an understanding of what God has already said. Again, all of humanity bears the mark of their creator, but only those in Christ are considered the children of God. We have been adopted into his family and given his Holy Spirit. Your identity is found in the person of your Father, your Savior, and in your sealing by the Spirit. We have been adopted into his family and given that new identity. You are a son and daughter of God fully. You are fully a child of God. I have said it before. We were not the kids in the orphanage that people rushed to adopt. You were not sitting there picture perfect in the orphanage and everybody was just fighting over you. No, 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 no. We were the children that were off in the corner. Our clothes just completely in shambles. We were the ones that nobody wanted. Everybody else would have looked over you and never given you a chance. But God says that if you put your faith in Christ Jesus, he will go and he will adopt you just as you are. And then begin to make you into his image. Even more so into the person of Christ. Not because we were good and and we were picture perfect, but because we needed him. And he says, I've adopted you. I've brought you into my family. I love adoption because it's telling people, I didn't have to, but I'm choosing to adopt this son or daughter. I always reference my childhood growing up. My dad left when I was real young, maybe a year and a half, two years old. I don't remember him. But when my younger brother was born, I was seven years old. And his dad, my stepdad, is now still in my life as my father. People say, who's your dad? And I'll tell them, that's, that's my dad. Because you know what? When he didn't have to, he chose to stay. And that wasn't an official adoption per se. But it's amazing the relationship we have. And he didn't have to stay. Man, do you know how easy it would have been for him to be like, I'm out? But he chose to commit to me and to my brothers and to my mom and say, I'm going to be there for them. It's amazing to think about the picture of adoption when God says, I don't have to choose you, but I'm willingly and joyfully accepting you into my family through Christ Jesus and the sacrifice of the cross. We truly need to believe what God did for us. We need to believe what God says about us. But thirdly, we need to believe how God sees you. What he did for you, what he says about you, and how he sees you. I truly believe that if we'll get our hands around this, our minds around this, we will begin to live differently. So how does God see us? A couple of things. Not exhaustive. 
Not exhaustive, but just a couple thoughts. First and foremost, God sees you as a living poem, a piece of art. You might say, what in the world are you talking about? Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. Ephesians chapter 2. Thank you so much for bringing your Bibles today. If you don't have a Bible, you don't have maybe it on your device or your phone or whatever, you can go to our app, North Goodland BC, on your app store. Download our app. There's a Bible app right on there. It's all free. You can download that and have the Bible on your device. Or if you would like to get a Bible today, we have some Bibles at the Welcome Center. We'd love to give you and put in your hands. Don't feel weird about that. Don't feel embarrassed about that. Uh, we just want to give you one and so that you have the Word of God for yourself. And so I want you to see these are God's words, not my words. God tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, look at verse 10. Right after he talks about the beauty of grace, that salvation is by grace alone, not by works. And we got to get that. We don't, we're not saved by going to church. We're not saved by being a good person. We're not saved by doing this or that. We're saved and redeemed by just receiving the person of Jesus Christ. And again, I don't know what that does for you. I think if we had to work our way there, and we understood how far short we would fall, man, I think when we hear grace, we'd be much more excited. I don't know. Or maybe that's just in my head. But I just think, man, if we had to work to get there, and we found out just how far short we would go, and then we're offered grace, man, I think it would do something to us. I think it would, I think it would bring a joy, a deeper joy to our hearts. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. How does God see us? After salvation, listen to what he says. For you are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Following salvation by grace, there are works that come out of our lives. And he says here, you are his workmanship. That word workmanship is the word in the Greek poema, which was where we get the word poem. God says here that you are his poem, his work of art. A living display, if you will, written by the hand of God to display what? The grace and love for God, or that God has for us, and the grace and love for God, of God that God has for others. And we'll begin to live that out, and people begin to read our lives and see the artwork that is grace working in and through us, and it will be a testimony to them. And so when our words and our lives match up, it's a beautiful praise to God's glory, that he is glorified, that others would come to Christ. Augustine, the early church father, said this, Men go abroad to admire the heights of mountains, the mighty waves of the sea, the broad tides of rivers, the compass of the ocean, and the circus, circuits of the stars, and yet pass over the mystery of themselves without a thought. Men go abroad to see the beauty of creation and the wonder of his display in the heavens, and yet we pass by ourselves without even giving a thought to our creator. And God says that he loves you he gave himself for you, and you are a living, breathing work of art on display for the world to see. And so I guess I would ask the question, are you allowing that to be evident in your life? Are you displaying yourself before the others in this world or in your life that they would see the work of God in you? Do you see yourself 
as a piece of art formed and created by God himself that he puts on display proudly to show what his grace can accomplish. We are a living poem, a living piece of art, but we're also a living sacrifice. Romans 12, 1 and 2. We're not going to turn there for time's sake. Romans 12, 1 and 2 tells us that we are to be a living sacrifice. Not conformed or molded to this world, but transformed by the renewing of our mind. That we would see ourselves as God sees us and we would live as a living sacrifice, completely submitted and surrendered to his Holy Spirit, allowing him to lead, guide, and direct. And when we live that way, we're not only displaying his grace, but we're displaying his glory in our lives. When we truly understand what God did for us, what God says about us, and how God sees us, we will willingly sacrifice our lives for him and his kingdom. So I want to ask you a question this morning. And I, I just want you to think about this, and I want you to really evaluate and think over this, this idea this morning, because I think we get so caught up in the world's way of thinking. And I want you to just start thinking about something for a moment. I want you to think about how you see yourself. I want you to think about how you value yourself. What you like about yourself in Christ Jesus. What you see as just great blessings from God in your life. And here's the thing. If I asked you to write that down, most of you, most of you would struggle to get more four or five words on a piece of paper. If I asked you, what do you like about yourself in Christ? But if I said, okay, now tell me the things you don't like about yourself. Tell me the things you want to change about yourself. Man, you guys would be writing inside, told you to stop. We did this with our youth group a few years ago. I handed them a three-by-five card and I said, on one side, all I want you to do is write all the things you want to change about yourself. And they were just going to town. Just writing and 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 writing. And then I said, okay, okay, take time. Time out. Turn that card over. Now I want you to write all the things you like about yourself on that side. And I literally had students looking at the card going, and they'd write one thing down and, now, here's what we do. We say, well, I don't want to be prideful. I'm not talking about being prideful. I'm talking about realizing who you are in Christ. If he says you are who he says he is, then why is it wrong then for us to see ourselves that way and live that way? It's not. And I think we think we're being humble, but we're really robbing God the praise and the glory of who he's made us to be and making us to be. I don't know why we do it. I really don't. Unless it's that flesh, that old way of thinking, trying to tear us back and hold us down. So I'm not going to have you guys write anything down this morning. I I was debating about that. I'm not going to have you write out how you see yourself. But I want you to begin thinking, okay, why do I see myself this way? Why do I think about myself in a negative sense first? And here's the truth of it. Some of you have some sin in your life that you need to deal with. 
Some of you have some apathy or some division or bitterness or unforgiveness, and you need to deal with that because until you deal with those issues, you will not see yourself the way God sees you. You will allow those things to distract and divide your thinking and to pull you away. And some of you have been sitting in a service for years knowing what you need to do and rejecting it. And you use all kinds of excuses like, well, you just don't understand what I'm going through. You just don't understand how hard it is. I don't care how hard you think it is because it's only as hard as you're making it. Realize his grace for you. Why would you hold on to a sin that you know, if you are in Christ, has already been forgiven and could easily be restored unless you don't really see his grace for what it is? Man, we need to surrender that junk and just get rid of it. And then we can start seeing ourselves the way God sees us. And if you're in sin right now, you're not giving it up, you're not letting it go, and you're a follower of Christ then let me tell you something. He doesn't change how he sees you. The reason we need to give it up is because it changes how we see him. Let me say that again. If you have sin in your life and you're a follower of Christ, I mean, truly, you've received Christ. I'm not talking about your parents' religion. I'm not talking about going to church. I'm not talking about any of that other surface kind of superficial Christianity. I'm talking about you know you have been converted, you've confessed, repented. There's a time in your life where you've surrendered to Christ, and yet you find yourself in a season of sin. And it kills you, it breaks your heart, you hate it, and in turn you started hating yourself. You started tearing yourself down. Then here's what I encourage you to do. Give that to him. Say, God, I'm sorry for this. I confess and I repent and let's move on. Because until you do, it's not that he sees you differently. You are still his son or daughter. That never changes. That never changes. But what changes is how you see him. Because this sin issue is dividing in that intimate relationship you need to have. I was so blessed yesterday to be able to do a wedding. And it was just, I always love doing weddings. They're just such an amazing time to come together and celebrate and just, just have that time of joy. And it, got, it always gets me thinking, whenever I do a wedding or I do counseling for a wedding, it reminds me that the greatest illustration of Christ's love for his church is marriage. That when a husband and wife come together and they become one flesh, that the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 5 that that's the explanation of the, the illustration of the mystery that is Christ's love for the church. And so when we come together as the body of Christ and we're submitting to his leadership and we're following him as our Savior, then we need to be of one mind, of one flesh. And he's right in his thinking towards us. It's our thinking about him or our thinking about ourselves that changes the dynamic and takes away that intimacy and so I have to ask you this morning, do you truly believe what he did for you? Do you truly believe what he says about you? And do you truly believe how he sees you? And if I'm, if I'm being honest, I'm not naive enough to think that it's, it's not possible. Someone in this room will say yes to all three of those questions. And you'll walk out of here and live as though you believe none of it. 
You'll sit here in church and go, yeah, brother, I believe that mentally. I believe that mentally. I believe that mentally. But we'll live in a way that reflects a total different belief system. And don't allow your flesh or the enemy or this world to rob you of who God says you are. What God has done for you to show your value and who God says he's making you to be. Let's be honest. We're not all finished projects, right? We're that, 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 that vase that is being molded by the potter. And there's some, some lumps. <laughs> there's some cracks. There's some things that aren't perfect. And man, don't we want them gone? We wish it was just perfect and smooth and finished product. Some of you try to live that way. You try to put that image out there like, I got it all figured out. We're good. We're the good little Christian family. No problems. No, 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 man. Everything's good. There's, and you're always showing the side of the vase that's the most finished. And you keep secret kind of that spot that the lump <laughs> or the crack or where it's not quite level. And if you know me, I've tried to make some things for around the house. And they're usually not quite level when we're done. For Mother's Day, I made these little, I don't even know what you call them. Found it on YouTube. But they're like candle holder things. You kind of set the candle on there. It's got like a wood dowel underneath it there, a spindle. And I made them all up and everything was great. And there was one that was just a hair teetered, just a little bit. And I thought, oh, no, I only bought so many of these. What am I going to do? And so what did I do when I presented it to Sandra? I was like, hey, I got your Mother's Day gift. I'm ready to go. You know what you do? You just turn it just a little bit. So that part that teeters isn't quite as noticeable. And then I, put, I, I was going to put the candle on there, but I didn't have the candles that were the color that I thought she'd want. And I'm like, oh, no. So before she put the candle on, I was like, okay, look, confession. All right? When you put it on there, it's going to go, think, you know, a little bit. Because I wanted to present it in its best possible light. I wanted to make it look as good as possible. But I knew. Even though she didn't, she couldn't, she's like, what are you talking about? I don't even see it. She's being so gracious. Okay? I'm like, it's obvious. If, unless you're blind, you can't, you can't see that. But she was so in love with just the thought of the gift. Do you know what? She kind of looked past that. Said, no, no, it looks great. And see, what we need to realize is that's God's love for you. When you present a cracked and broken vase with scars and lumps and it's uneven, he says, this is beautiful. This is beautiful. Because then he takes you just as you are and begins to shape you and mold you. Not to what the world thinks you should be, but to what he knows you can be in Christ. And then all of a sudden, one day, we will stand before him and John says we will be like him. But until that day, I am confident, as Paul is, that he who begun a good work in you will complete it, will finish that work. On the day of Christ Jesus. So we're not finished products yet. Just admit it. But realize that as an unfinished project in the hands of the creator, he's doing a work in you. And it's okay to admit and surrender and say, God, I don't know what you're going to do, but I believe what you did for me. I believe what you say about me, and I believe how you see me. And I pray that that would determine my value of myself, that I could love myself in a way that is appropriate a way that honors you. Therefore, do you realize that we can't really love our neighbor as ourselves unless we love ourselves? 
If you hate yourself, you're not going to love your neighbor. If you're geared for seeing faults in you, you're just going to see faults in them. And so how can I do what God has called me to do? First, I love him with all of me through Christ Jesus, only possible through Christ. You can't love God with all of you outside of Jesus Christ. It's impossible. So I love God with all of me through Christ and salvation. And then secondly, I love myself in Christ, therefore able to love my neighbors. And so here's what I want to do. I'm going to ask you to, to bow your heads. I want to have a little bit of time for invitation this morning, and here's why. With your heads bowed, just real quick. I want to ask you a question. And it's one that I pray you will truly evaluate between you and God. It's something that we have to get our minds around. But with every head bowed and eye closed, I want to ask a question. I want to ask that I would pray for you. And I'm going to ask you to respond this morning. I don't usually push responses, but I'm going to ask you to respond this morning. I'm not going to call you out or embarrass you. It's your choice if you respond. But here's what I want to ask you with your heads bowed and eyes closed. Is there anybody here that being honest with themselves this morning, you would say, you know, Pastor John, because of whatever reason, something that happened to you, something you did, I, I don't even know. And it really doesn't matter what the reason is, but, but you're here now. This is where we are. And if you were honest with yourself, you'd say, you know what? I know Christ is my Savior. I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Christ. I know Jesus. I've received his salvation. But if I'm being honest, I don't like myself very much. I don't like myself very much. I don't like this or that or whatever it might be. But you just struggle in this area. And maybe you wouldn't say, I hate myself. But maybe you would say there are some times I get pretty close. So you're a follower of Christ, but you struggle in this area of kind of self-hate. I tear myself down. I don't like myself very much. Here's what I want to, I want to pray for you because that can be so damaging to our Christian lives. And I just want to pray for you. And so just with every head bowed and eye closed, is there anyone that would say, pray for me, Pastor John, that's me. I struggle in the area in my life. Maybe not today, but it's something I battle with often. And as I'm a Christian, and I, I just, I don't like myself very much sometimes. Is there anyone that would raise their hand and say, pray for me, Pastor John, that's me. I'm not going to call you out. I just want to pray for you. Amen. Over here on the, on the right side. Absolutely. Yep. Just put it up and keep it up for a minute and then put it back down. Anyone else? Some hands over here. Back there. Amen. Anyone else? I just, you know, I just don't like myself very much over here. Amen. Just put it up. Keep it up for a second and put it down. Anyone else? Amen. Anyone else? Just battle with that. Maybe you're here and you're not a Christian. You've never surrendered to the call of the Holy Spirit. You've never received Christ as your Savior. Maybe you grew up in church. Maybe you went to church as a kid or you went to VBS or something and, and you kind of thought, you know, I'm good. I mean, I'm not a bad person. I go to church occasionally. <laughs> and here's what I would ask you to do this morning. Then maybe you would say, God, you know what? I know that I've sinned. I know that I've done things that are wrong. It's not just the big things. It's anything that displeases God. I know that I've done wrong things. But I want to believe today that you died on the cross for my sins. I want to believe today that you were buried in a tomb. And I want to believe today that you rose again. 
And I'm going to ask that you would forgive me of my sins. That I would know you. That I would follow you. Surrender my life to you. With every head bowed, is there anyone here this morning that doesn't know Christ personally? I just want to pray for you. If you don't know him, I'm going to pray that you'd be able to open your heart to him this morning and find that salvation. Is there anyone here that says, you know, Pastor John, pray for me. I don't know Christ as my Savior, but I want to. I want to. Is there anyone that would raise their hand and say that this morning? I don't know Christ as my Savior, but I want to. Would you pray for me? Before we pray, as you continue to pray there, one final thought. Those of you that raised your hand, that say, I just don't like myself sometimes. I know Christ. I know I've been forgiven of my sins, but, but I struggle with that believing that to the point of living it out. I want to believe what he says about me and what he sees in me, but I just don't sometimes. And here's what I want you to do. I'm going to ask you that in a moment we're going to stand and we're not going to sing a song. The band is going to lead us in just an instrumental time, but I just want to ask you to stand in just a moment. And those of you that raised your hand and those of you that didn't, but that's you, you're struggling. Now I'm going to ask you to come forward, bow a knee, just right up front here, just bow a knee and leave that self-destructing hate right here at this altar. God, I believe you are who I say I am. God, I believe you are the God that loved me enough to do all this for me. And I believe you see me as your child. I want to live that way, not in a prideful sense but in just a way of acknowledging you. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to ask you to stand after we pray. We're going to pray, and then you're going to stand. And if that's you, don't think about it. Don't worry about anyone else. Stop thinking about what others think, and you just respond. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would be glorified in this time this morning. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for your love. Thank you for saying that we are your children in Christ. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. I pray that we would love ourselves in a way that is honoring and glorifying to you, our Savior. That we would stop letting the world tell us how we should think of ourselves and how we should look and how we should act. And we would start looking to your word for how we should live and start looking to your word for how we should live, uh, think about ourselves and how we should act. So Father, you be glorified in this time. Thank you for all that you've done all that you're going to do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet this morning as we have a time of invitation? If that's you, if that's you and you're struggling in that area, would you come? Would you bend a knee and say, God, I want to believe what you say about me. I'm not going to believe the lies anymore. I'm going to believe what you say. Would you come this morning, bend a knee, you raise the hand, stop letting fear hold you back. Make that decision today so that you can be freed from that bondage of fear and hate. You come this morning and pray. Those of you that are in the audience, would you just continue to pray and worship during this time?